Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we discussed the former Spanish-American Empire and its rocky relationship with the United States until the end of the 19th century. Today, we'll move into the 20th century and see the ways in which Manifest Destiny interacted with the Cold War. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Scott Weaver. Hey. And we've been talking about the United States and its interventions in Central, South America, Latin America. And it's been some pretty crazy stuff so far. Last time we were uh, together, we talked about, uh, well, the last thing we talked about was the Spanish-American War, where basically the United States decided that uh, they'd take a little more active role in intervening in uh, in kind of the, the Western Hemisphere's affairs by helping the Cuban liberators, you know, kick out the Spanish Empire. Right. And it was really kind of a, a turning point because they ended up with all these, you know, new territories, you know, Guam, Puerto Rico, the Philippines that they weren't really setting out to get, but they kind of got a little carried away. And it was it was a bit of a, a high watermark in terms of like American imperialism, especially after, you know, they're kind of founded on these anti-imperial uh, sentiments, right? Like the whole independence movement, and so right. it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a turning point in terms of U.S. identity and uh, and the dynamic between them and the rest of the Americas. So I thought we'd do kind of a bit of a check in because when we started last time. You know, we basically started with the the beginning of the age of colonialism, you know, 1500, right? And, right. And so we, we moved pretty quickly uh, towards the end. We jumped over some some pretty big events. And, and I thought we'd just kind of like take a second and go like, where are we at? Like, where's the United States at in that's, 1900? Where's Latin America at in 1900? What's going on here? That's perfect. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that the, the last talk we had was very... Uh, useful for me because it felt a lot of gaps in my knowledge of of that part of the world and that that time era yeah well that's good that's what we're hoping to do here right like that's that's what i'm aiming for is you know i i find that in terms of just like minutes of coverage or pages of coverage latin america does not get a lot of love well i mean especially in canadian history books (laughs) right exactly but it's it's not it's not for for lack of anything interesting happening here it's a it's a I mean, it's an artifact of a, a sort of colonial relationship that's happening there, right? And it's right. kind of like, well, this, you know, it's down there. It doesn't matter that much sort of attitude that comes out in some of these things. So if at some point in HI 101, I want to talk about, for example, the Cuban Revolution, right? We can't really responsibly do that without at least some sort of a background of like, well, what's going on exactly in the world in, you know, the 1950s with Cuba that, that puts them in that 
in that place and like totally. yeah of course that show begins with background as all of them do but like i i'd like to get as many people as possible on this sort of like broad general uh idea of what this this situation looks like so yeah 1900 i, I think i think one of the things that people would find most surprising about the united states and its relationship to latin america at that point in time is that you know in 1900 the united states is still very much a, a middle power you know it's not this big dominant world power like superpower that we think of today that that's hard and, for me to imagine <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean it's still a relatively new country right and, and the places in the world that have the most power are still kind of in Europe or in Asia, you know, you, you look at something like the Royal Navy and and mm. its ability to project power across the world, the British, the size of the British Empire at that point in time, and the United States is completely dwarfed in comparison, right? And you know, one of the one of the measures that we we use to kind of compare uh, nations in, in in this sort of context that it's not you know, the best measure, but you know, you got to work with what you have is something like GDP or GDP per capita, right? And when you look at the discrepancy between where the United States is at and where a lot of Latin American countries are, the United States is doing better, but not by nearly as much as you might think. Hmm. Yeah. The, uh, you know, somewhere like, uh, uh, Mexico is maybe somewhere around $2,400 per capita kind of thing per year. Right. Whereas the United States is at about $4,000 a year, you know, for context, like, I think it was Argentina was doing about $2,600. That's about where Canada was at the same time. Right. And when you look at the, uh, when you look at all these nations now, you kind of tend to think of them as a little bit underdeveloped, right? Compared to North America, yeah, that wasn't necessarily be, uh, a given at the beginning of the twentieth century, right? Which is something that's really important to to consider. So, how do we get from you know this fairly small gap to this very like one sided colonial relationship, right? That's kind of the the next obvious question. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really complicated answers to that. I, I would say the biggest one though is that the style of economy that's happening in Latin America compared to what you're seeing in North America is very, very different. And that comes from a couple of different things. Um, one is sort of the, the uh, decentralization of the infrastructure in South America and Central America. It's a little bit easier to kind of consolidate manufacturing and things like that on the Eastern seaboard of the United States than it is in sort of these discrete centers of industry around Latin America. I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but even little things like geography kind of make things a little bit different, but it's right. also a remnant of the way that the Spanish empire had been set up. They weren't really looking for these like centralized manufacturing places. They were looking for colonies that are exporting raw materials, right? They just wanted to extract as much wealth as they can. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, the United States was in the same boat, but Another thing that you have is legal stagnation. And again, we're painting all of Latin America with a very broad brush here. But in general, what you have in the 19th century in Latin America is a sort of a holdover from a dynamic that we talked about last time, the Criollos versus the Peninsulares, right? In New Spain, generally, gen uh, uh, governorship was in the hands of Spaniards who were born in Spain and came to govern in the New World, whereas uh, Criollos, people who are born in the New World, were not necessarily uh, given access to that type of power. So when all of Latin America de declares independence, it's done to basically take power from the peninsulares and put it into the hands of the Criollos, right? But these people don't actually have governing power 
uh, or governing experience rather. Right. Um, they also don't have a lot of legal experience necessarily. And so things like writing laws, updating constitutions, uh, creating constitutions from whole cloth, that's kind of beyond them to a certain extent. For comparison of the 56 uh, signatories of the Declaration of the Independence, 48 of 56 had been born in the American colonies, had grown up there, were going to remain American citizens. So they were... They weren't like booting out all the people with with experience. They were they were the people with experience, right? And so they get down to work on writing the the constitution like very quickly, right? And it's a completely new system that's designed to be wholly independent from Europe. That's kind of the point. Within Latin America, what you have is several decades of countries basically going like, okay, well we're independent now. What do we do with that? We can't just like burn everything to ground to the ground and start over. We, what we do know how to do is like export raw materials because that's what we've been doing all along. So we're just going to continue selling raw materials just to keep the economy from just crashing and burning. Right. And so they'll continue selling to primarily Great Britain, actually, who's decided that if they're not going to have direct control or influence over the, the new world, they're fine with economic influence where they'll right. just pay slightly more than everybody else because they have so much money and more or less monopolize the uh, exports of all these little new countries. Interesting. This is known as neo-imperialism. Right. They uh, they don't need to control the land. They just need to control the, the resources themselves. Right. It's a lot less work that way. <laughs> There's also this desire to remain competitive against one another. A lot of these countries are... are uh, exporting similar resources. And so there's this kind of drive to the bottom in terms of pricing, right? Mm. And what I found really striking when going over all this stuff is how similar some of the tactics used in getting these resources from these countries, how, how similar it is to some of the stuff you'll see when, say, a, a major corporation today is looking to set up a new headquarters or a new facility or something like that, where it's kind of like, well, who can give us the best deal on this, right? right. Like, well, we want, we want perks, we want tax breaks, we want, you know, We'll, we'll contribute to your economy, but only if you give us a break, only if you meet us halfway, that right. sort of thing. Reminds me of the, the Amazon HQ2 stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I found it like strikingly familiar in that, in that, in that capacity. So, okay, all of this kind of comes together to see the United States kind of take off economically. And after the Civil War, when all of a sudden there's a distinct lack of manual labor, uh, cheap or, or free in the South, um, the United States starts industrializing really quickly, right? They turn to manufacturing for their, their industry rather than uh, simply uh, resource extraction, right? right? And so you get this real uh, uh, takeoff at the end of the 19th century for the United States that you don't necessarily see to the same extent in Latin America. They're simply selling off resources and then they're importing all these finished goods from other places that are manufacturing them and that really hampers them. It's not as though the U.S. was just on a straight upward trajectory at this time. Uh, the Civil War really did hurt them economically, right. as did Reconstruction afterwards. Uh, there's 20 years in there where they're just trying to figure out what a post-Civil War economy looks like, right. post-Civil War society. And, and that really does hurt things. But once that new order kind of starts figuring itself out and things like uh, expansion to the West Coast. We talked about the the acquisition of California last time. Uh, there's a gold rush that shows up as soon as they start moving into California, right? Mm -hmm. So they got to get out to that West Coast. Railroad is a big, big industry. So that stuff really starts stimulating the economy. It just takes a little bit longer than it might have if they hadn't been tied up in reconstruction for so long. The U.S. also really starts working on their Navy 
again, after the Civil War, it kind of stagnates a little bit. And this is one point, actually, I, I wanted to make that it's it's really important to keep in mind here. We're going to talk a lot of this uh, this topic as though Latin America is sort of a passive participant, right? Like all this stuff is sort of happening to these various countries. And that's absolutely not true. Um, there's plenty of internal, well, not necessarily internal, but uh, intra-nation uh, conflict um, mm. happening at this point in time, as well as well as trade. And there's a there's a very real chance at like an alternate history in about 1880 or so, where the U.S. Navy is just awful compared to some of the stuff that that a few uh, South American countries have. Right. Uh, specifically, uh, Chile has a really strong. Uh, navy at this point there's a there's a very particular i had a, had a listener actually ask me if i was going to talk about this and i wasn't actually planning to but here we go um <laughs> there's this little scrap in in what would be panama eventually where the, the canal is going to be uh in 1885 it was Colombia at the time and chile who had just won uh more or less a a war, uh, it was called the War of the Pacific against uh, Bolivia and Peru, had spent a bunch of money on their Navy. Like they had like top end British built uh, warships and they send one called the Esmeralda to Peru or to uh, Panama rather, basically to say like, uh, you guys aren't getting Panama, just FYI. Like this isn't a, this isn't an opportunity to just take some territory. <laughs> right. And the U.S. admirals that see this ship basically go like, we have nothing that could possibly stack up to it. U.S. ships are still like they're the 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 old like Ironside style battleships with like the wooden decks. Right. So if you got a shot onto the deck, they, it would just punch right through and you know burn a hole through your powder reserve. It, it'd be a it'd be a complete mess. The Esmeralda's outfitted with a full iron deck. It is like top top of the line, like best guns, best armor out there. And they basically went like, yeah, we we can't we can't keep up. So yeah, I mean, when we talked last time about uh, U.S. intervention in the in the you know the Spanish-American War, taking on the Spanish Navy in the Caribbean. This encounter ten years prior with the Chilean uh, Navy is is in a lot of ways to thank for their success in that that war because they come back with like top of the line um, naval uh, sh- uh, uh, or uh, yeah navies that are capable of taking this on where they might not have been able to even ten years before. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, uh, especially now, looking back that far, how important a good Navy is to projection of power internationally in this era. Because you have to remember, like, there's no airplanes yet. Like, we do not have bombers. We do not have ICBMs. Yeah. There's nothing. The best thing that you can do to, like, project raw military power is a battleship. That's interesting. Because in my mind, when I think Navy, I think aircraft carriers, Mm -hmm. right? But I mean, obviously, that's not a thing then. Yeah, I mean, it's you're basically looking at World War II before they become common or or useful. There's there's attempts at it before, but they're mostly hilarious. (laughs) Um, There's a there's a an American naval theorist, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan in this era. That's basically going like, yep, the way to win any battle is just as many battleships as possible. Right. Yeah. The Brits had different ideas about how that works, but, (laughs) um, you know, he'd be very, very important in naval theory for a long time. And it was basically, yep, bigger, bigger guns, the better, more and more. And they, they really stood by that for, for quite some time. So that kind of gets us back to where we were with the, the Spanish, uh, American war. But that only really encompasses like direct military action by the United States. There's another form of power that's happening and has been happening for a couple of decades now by 1900, and that's soft economic policy. 
all of this instability that comes out in the first few decades of uh, uh, independence in Latin America, it, it's a lot of like, there are a lot of very poor people and a few very wealthy people. There's a lot of economic uh, inequality mm-hmm. and the people who are in power are more than willing to sell out their own fellow countrymen to uh, American business interests. They have absolutely no problem doing that. And so what you have is a lot of American companies coming in, taking advantage of some of the instability that's happening or some of the just straight up business advantages that are there and using it as a kind of a foot in the door to really start funneling some of those resources and also just straight cash back up into the United States. Right. One of the most common being, as we talked about earlier, uh, railroads. There's this sense in the late 19th century that to be civilized, you need railroads. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of countries who are kind of going, hey, for some for very, very good reasons, uh, in Latin America going, like, we need rail, but we don't really have the capability to uh, design, build, maintain rail. And there are American companies offering to build it for them. But they're not really like selling them the plans to a steam engine or, you know, shipping down some ties and calling it a day. They're actually going down and they're operating these rail lines. So they're, they're, they're embedding themselves in the infrastructure of these companies or okay. of these countries. Right. And, uh, any profits are going straight back to the United States. Um, it's, it's really, really quite common. So it's not like help you build a railroad. It's here's a railroad that you can pay us for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, there, there's some modern par- parallels you could maybe draw here, but uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, we don't talk about modern stuff on this show. <laughs> I mentioned the gold rush before. That brought more concern about getting to the Pacific faster than had been in place prior. Mm. People had always wanted to get across to the Pacific as quickly as possible instead of going down around Cape Horn. But now that there's like gold found in California, it's like, okay, this saves literally like a week and a half or about a week of sailing time to go through. And before there's any canals in place in, say, the 1850s, the best way to do that is to actually just ship everything to one shore of Panama, cart it across and put it on a different ship to go north across the Gulf. And there's obviously an opportunity here to carry cargo faster and once again, Panama Railroad, right? Just rail line from the Pacific to the Atlantic, no problems. It's going to get the job done. Now, the company that builds the Panama Railroad, they actually asked Columbia for a 20-mile wide exclusion zone to run this railroad properly. So 20 miles either side of the rail, or sorry, no, 20 miles total. Um, I'll have to double check that. I can't remember. It's it's a massive amount of right. land either way though, right? to administrate this rail line because they kind of had some like some people were really upset with the idea of the railroad they had some kind of riots on their hands things like that and they basically Mm. went well we want to be able to police this and you guys aren't doing a good enough job so we better do it ourselves now we're talking about getting a private police force into panama along with the railroad anyway it's always this like creeping like amount of power going into these other places right and as we talked about last time this sort of entitlement to that power where, like, can you imagine, I don't know what kind of business in, let's say Germany. Say you set up a branch of your office in Germany and, you know, it turns out that there were some protests about climate change or something. And you went, well, guess I need 200 guys to protect my offices and right. you need to be okay with that. Let's just keep it clear for 10 miles around the office. Right. Like, that would be <laughs> insane. You would yeah. never ask that of anybody. Here we are. <laughs> right. 
It's kind of wild. The Marines actually go down a number of times to intervene and protect the Panama Railroad. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, like these are actual military interventions that are happening here. And then is the, is the Panama Railroad associated with the U.S. government at this time, or the Marines are coming down to protect private U.S. citizens? The second one. Wow. Private U.S. citizens. Yeah, military intervention for private U.S. citizens. Now, can I see diplomats talking to Colombian diplomats about the situation here? Sure. Can right. I see them asking the Colombian government to provide more protection for business interests? Absolutely. Just rolling in with the Marines? Like, that's wild. <laughs> in the 1880s, uh, the Secretary of State of the United States, uh, James G. Blaine, puts in place something that's known as the Big Brother policy. And this is the sort of like... Yeah, I'll just call it what it is. I was looking for a nicer way of putting this, but it's this like benevolent racism, right? Mm. It's this idea that like, oh, these people need our help and our protection and we'll like be a guiding light to them right? to show them how to become more civilized like us. It's it's this whole, you know, it's this, it's the exact same thing that's going to come up with, uh, you know, in the Philippines in the 1899 or in, in the 1899 occupation where you have uh, Rudyard Kipling, uh, the guy who wrote the Jungle Book, uh, writing uh, a poem called The White Man's Burden about, you know, just how hard yeah. it is being a white person right. and showing all the non-white people how to live oh, so tough you know it's it's this it's yeah i think benevolent racism is the best way to put that where it's just like this feeling of of an obligation to to show these people the way and and this is all very much wrapped up in it right this this idea of we're going to be a big brother to the, all the other, you know, the, the little baby American countries and we'll show them how to be more American like us. And right. there's just no concept of these nations maybe not wanting to be exactly like that. It's just not it's just not even entertained. It's it's yeah. Right. Who, who wouldn't want to be civilized? Right. Right. And it's part of converting the Monroe Doctrine, kind of like we talked about last time, converting it to this more active interventionist policy rather than this passive, like mm -hmm. we won't tolerate any new European uh, intervention in the Americas. Now mm -hmm. it's like, a well, we have the right to go in there and show them how it's done. Right. It's this idea that Latin American sovereignty is the same thing as U.S. business interest success. Right. Which is quite the leap to make. <laughs> Um, but that's that's what they're thinking of here. They're going like, well, the success of the Panama Railroad, for example, is ex the success of the Colombian people. And in order for the Colombian people to be better, to have better lives, American business needs to succeed in Panama. Mm. And it's like, OK, well, I guess I, I guess I can see where you're coming from, but I don't much like it. <laughs> This all kind of comes to a head with uh, Theodore Roosevelt becoming president in 1901. Uh, you'll remember we talked about him briefly last time in the Spanish-American War uh, before he was president, where he just kind of goes down to Cuba with his Rough Riders, which are just like a bunch of his buddies, and they have they have their like fun little war down there, and right. they'll get really sick and you know, shoot some people or whatever. <laughs> You know, for fun, like you do. <laughs> like you do. Yeah. Roosevelt, vacation. Roosevelt is, yeah. Roosevelt's just such a weird guy. Like, I understand <laughs> why people like him so much. But it's just like, he's such a little kid. But also he's big enough and rich enough to just go around shooting everything. Like he just spends time in Africa just shooting all the biggest animals he can find. He spends time in right. South America, like sailing down the, the the Amazon at one point. He's actually where you get the idea of, of piranhas like stripping a cow to the bones. Right. Right. Because they don't do that. I don't know if you're 
aware I'm, of this that, that, that that's like a myth like the the cartoon I mean, i've thing. seen it on the cartoons yeah yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> so a bunch of the locals a bunch of the locals went this idiot like we'll show them something they netted a whole bunch of piranhas mm-hmm. in an area for like like a week or something like that for, for for long enough that they were just like ravenously hungry and then like pushed a goat in there and they they did strip the goat because they were they were starving to death right you know they cut it first so that anyway you know and and Roosevelt watched this and was just like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I'm going to write all about this. <laughs> Everyone thought that's just what piranhas did from then on. Right. Anyways, completely off topic. But yeah, Roosevelt was this whole, like, you know, he exercised himself out of his asthma and, you know, he, he got shot in the chest and, and went on and did a speech anyways. And what was it? It takes more than one bullet to kill a bull, bull moose. Like imagine <laughs> trying to assassinate a president and then he just like dunks on you and then does a speech. <laughs> just, just a wild guy. But anyway, Anyways, his basically what he does is like in in the in the wake of the the Spanish American War, basically says we have every right to intervene in domestic affairs whenever it is in the interest of American businesses or or American interests in any way, shape, or form. And this is fine, and this is part of the Monroe Doctrine. It's not what the original says, but that is the logical conclusion of it. Wow. And this this Roosevelt corollary is. I mean, it's it's absolutely extreme, but it is it's where you get to after the Spanish-American War, right? It's also built on the back of the Panama Crisis, where you know for fifty years the United States was trying to get you know the the canal built, get possession of the canal. They thought it was important for economic reasons, getting the Pacific. They also thought it was important for military reasons, right? Being able to get a fleet from one side of the continent to the other as quickly right. as possible. And they wanted control. They didn't want the Colombians having control over this. There had actually been a French effort for a little while to dig a canal, which the Americans were not terribly happy about. But it actually fell through really badly. Like the funding went, like like thousands of people lost their investments in the whole thing. It was a complete financial disaster oh, in wow. France. Yeah, it was terrible. But the United States finally got the break that they were looking for when they found out there was a substantial number of Panamanians who wanted independence from Colombia. And so basically they went in there and they backed a rebellion, a revolt against Colombia by the Panamanians, like with hard military force, allowing them to uh, uh, separate in exchange for that uh, that exclusionary zone that we talked about earlier. Now, it ended up being five miles rather than 20. But the United States had control over a strip of Panama five miles wide. Wow. Until the 70s. Until the 70s. Yeah. It was wow. Jimmy Carter that got rid of that. Crazy. Yeah. Wasn't a senator or somebody recently born in Panama? I can't remember. But they were born in the exclusionary zone. There's like oh. thousands of Americans that were living in Panama in this zone that was technically unincorporated American territory. Wow. Just so they could control the, the, the canal. Right. I don't know why you would want to be Panama and not have control of that canal. <laughs> I don't understand it. Anyways, this is the kind of intervention that Teddy Roosevelt was completely on board with. Like, oh, let's bet. get in there, get dirty, and get what we need. Because yeah. who cares about what's going on down there other than how it benefits us? Right. You know, there's also uh, 
Venezuelan banking crisis in 1902. Uh, they owed a bunch of money to the Germans. The Ger there's some German naval vessels come and try to blockade Venezuela. The United States uh, Navy runs them off. They get confirmation in the international courts that they have the right to do so, which just strengthens the the Monroe Doctrine. Like it, there's there's all sorts of stuff going on in this era, and yeah, a lot of it to back up what is seen as like national security interests. Right. But yeah, those businesses that we talked about before, there's a lot of supporting those too. Um, we should talk about Lorenzo Dow Baker. In 1870, uh, Baker bought uh, some bananas in Jamaica, sold them in Boston, and people went crazy for them. They loved these things. They were delicious. They were new. Came in their own wrapper. What's not to love? Right. Also, you could buy 12 bananas for the price of two apples. They were dirt cheap. Still are. <laughs> Still are. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. You're right. Well, and, and I mean, consider that uh, we could get to an apple orchard within a 10 minute drive. Oh, yeah. From where we are right at this moment. Yeah. And bananas are still shipped up, right? Yeah. Like, that's still the way it goes. Yeah, people love bananas. They were great. The United States just went wild for them. Like, it was just the hottest new thing. Uh, in 1873, there's these uh, rail magnets that were actually working in Costa Rica, doing the, the rail in, in Costa Rica at the time. They actually planted a bunch of uh, banana plants to feed the workers, uh, the locals, uh, Henry Miggs and Minor C. Keith. And they realized, uh, as they were working, that it would actually be more profitable to just plant the strip that they had control of with bananas and export them to the United States than it was to build this railroad for Costa Rica. Wow. So they finished it, but they kept control of the land and they formed uh, what would become the United Fruit Company. This company is still around. It's now known as the Chiquita Banana Company. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yep. Anyways, they got big enough and powerful enough that they essentially ran several Central American countries for a few, for for quite a while and had private armies. Wow! All from like some bananas beside a railroad. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, they expanded quickly after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That was the start of it. Crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they finished the rail by 1890 and 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 off they go. This this export business is so lucrative that they basically end up governments in the area can't afford not to concede to these companies in ways that essentially strip their economy because everybody in the country is growing this one thing. Right. If you have 90% of a country, literally 90% of a country's arable land being used for banana production, how do you feed your people? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you don't, right? is the answer. Like yeah. not, not cheaply, like no. you're, you're importing food. It's, it's a terrible situation. But these, country, these companies are so powerful that that's just kind of what they end up doing. And they're also powerful enough that any time, like they're, they're, they're creating so much wealth that's going back to the United States, that any time something happens that they don't like for whatever reason, they can call on the United States government and basically say, hey, you know how you guys said that it's really important that U.S. business ventures are protected. Uh, it's in the national interest that they're, they're protected. Well they're looking to raise our taxes or people are refusing to work on our farms or as you get later and later, maybe even the people want to take back the land at a fair market value and we don't want to sell it to them at that, even though that would be a, a, a perfectly reasonable thing for any sovereign government to do. Right. Can you come down here and help? 
And the United States government said, yeah, no problem, we'll be right there. This is the start of something known as the Banana Wars. Mm. It wasn't called that at the time. This is a this is a uh, after the fact type name. I think it was I think it was coined in the 80s, I want to say. Mm. There is a series of military actions in mainly Central America between 1898 and 1934 reinforcing these business interests. Some of them are like more of like a, pol- a policing or punitive action. So there's this thing called the Santo Domingo affair where uh, like one American Marine that was on, on leave after doing some guard duty at a port was killed in some sort of scuffle. And, and the, the United States invaded uh, Dominican Republic and, and like killed several people just wow. in retaliation for this, which is just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, some are more business oriented. So, there were seven separate Honduran invasions in this period to support the United Fruit Company. Wow. Seven separate invasions to support their business interests. Some of them are political intervention. For example, in Nicaragua, there were invasions to, I think the way they put it was, make sure that a friendly man got elected. You know, as you do. Right. It's totally legitimate. Hey, hey you know how you follow other countries' elections and then decide their outcomes for them? <laughs> You know how that's a feature of anyways. It, I don't know. I, I get I get hung up on some of this stuff. It's it's just it's so outrageous. Uh Haiti, Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama, Cuba, Colombia, Dominican Republic all see direct military intervention in this period. That's not counting indirect economic pressure that's put on other countries elsewhere. There's I believe 32 invasions wow. of Latin America by the US Marines. So it's not just a large company, you know, putting economic pressure on something. It's literally like soldiers Invading. knocking on the door. Yeah, amphibious and yeah, amphibious right. land. Actually, not even knocking, going going right in the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, busting busting yeah. the door busting down. Busting the door down. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's it's wild stuff. Yeah. Like, a lot of people died. Right. Like it's not for bananas. For bananas, yeah. For for U.S. business interests, it's 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 unreal to me. There's this really interesting thing that happens around this period this this kind of big brother era which is that you start seeing the demonization of latin americans in a in a very uh racialized manner Mm. by the united states you know this is this is a topic that we don't really have time to get into today but what you see with the united states and its relationship to race and color after the civil war is is a really complicated one but you know, in in general, there's a there's a pretty strong, you know, white supremacist bent to everything, right? What's interesting about Latin America specifically is that when all of that very clearly racialized stuff starts in the United States, you're black or you're white, and those are the options, right? And over the years, as other minorities are introduced to American society, you'll see like on the, you know, on the census and things like that, you know, a couple other options start showing up, you know, in the 1870s, when uh, Chinese workers start coming to work on the railroad, you'll see that show up, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. But one of the things that's fairly constant is that Latin Americans are counted as white until the 1930s or so. Then you start seeing, for example, Mexicans show up on the U.S. census for the first time as separate. You have a landmark uh, court case in 1935 where some Latin Americans were refused uh, citizenship because one of the prerequisites at that point in time was being white. Interesting. All of a sudden, Latin Americans aren't white anymore. Right. And and previously, they, they were been. considered white. Yeah. 
which I find really interesting. Again, we don't have a lot of time to like unpack that whole thing, but right. I really want to put that out there because I think it says a lot about the image of uh, uh, Latin Americans in the United States, especially from like a like a permission point of view in terms of like what it would be okay to do to a uh, white foreign nation versus a non-white foreign nation. Right. Right. There's, there's some, there's some uh, justification sort of implied there. It's not explicitly said, but this idea that like, well, these are, these are non-white nations that we're invading. Obviously they need our help. Obviously they're uh, less well off. Obviously they're less civilized. Right. There's, there's a lot of like winks along that, that path right. that make a lot of these interventions a lot more palatable to the uh, American people. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount too much the, uh, the, the cultural position of Latin Americans in this whole discussion. We're not going to linger on it or anything like that, but I, I, I do think it's worth looking at as they become more or less friendly throughout the, the decades, uh, how the American people are, are perceiving Latin Americans. Cause it says a lot, I think. There's a uh, revolution in Mexico, 1910 to 1920. One more really interesting topic we don't have time to actually get into. <laughs> this is like the Pancho Villa type, you know, a lot of those uh, more famous Mexican revolutionary type names right. are cropping up here. Really fascinating story. But a couple of the things that I want to point out there as, you know, before we move along way too quickly is number one, U.S. ownership of Mexican property is uh, one of the aggravating factors in this revolution. People are extremely unhappy with the fact that basically anyone that's not Mexican is able to own massive amounts of land, while Mexican farmers are unable to buy even enough to sustain their families. Right. And so, you know, as, as part of this revolution, uh, anti-American sentiments are like really high. And there are some military actions across the borders. Pancho Villa especially was uh, very anti-American, raided up into Texas. Uh, this was used as uh, reason enough to send military troops down into northern Mexico, right. cause some havoc there. It didn't necessarily endear the local uh, population to the United States. Uh, the second thing that I want to point out there is that at the end of the Mexican Revolution, the new constitution that's written, there's quite a bit of language in there about the constitutional right of the government to repatriate and publicize uh, property. It was such a it was such an issue for them that they write a mechanism right into their constitution for nationalizing land. Oh wow! Yeah, so that'll that'll come up later. <laughs> just just a little FYI. Just just leave that for now. <laughs> Keep in mind that. 1910 to 1920 encompasses the First World War. Right. And there's a moment in the First World War. Remember that the United States is, at least on paper, isolationist, number one, which is hilarious considering all the other stuff we're talking about. And uh, number two, uh, neutral in at the beginning of the First World War. Right. So they're not actually technically getting involved here as they continue to send Marines south. But anyways, have you ever heard of the Zimmerman Telegraph? No, no. Germany sends a message to the leadership of Mexico and they promise Mexico that if they join the war on the German side, then after the war is done and the German side is won, it, they don't, don't worry about it. But <laughs> when, when that happens, they will then support Mexico in a war against the United States to take back all that land lost in the Mexican American War in the 1850s. Uh, oh. Now, Mexico does not join the war 
on the German side. But what does happen is that the Zimmerman telegraph is intercepted. And it is one of the uh, one of the main reasons that the United States eventually joins the war on the side of Great Britain and France. Right. Because um, Germany threatened them with war. So anyway, it's just another little little tidbit there. But I think it, in another way, really opened their eyes to the fact that, like, this action is not gaining them any friends. Right. People are not happy about any of this. The Great Depression is really, really hard on Latin America because they are a resource-based uh, economy. And if there's a depression, then manufacturing is going to go down and raw materials are going to be essentially worthless. Right. So as hard as the United States gets hit, um, Latin America gets hit a lot harder. Um, nobody's buying what they have to sell. And it results in a redirection of their economies inward. Uh, development of manufacturing. There's some trade barriers within Latin America that get pulled down, some overtures at some free trade agreements, things like that. Mm. But they really start restructuring uh, at this point in time. On the back of all of these just like extremely turbulent changes that come in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, another Roosevelt, this time Roosevelt, not Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, decides that the policy that they've had towards uh, Latin America has been harmful more than anything, mm. which I think is a fair <laughs> assessment. <laughs> right. And he decides to basically reverse uh, everything they've been doing under the Roosevelt corollary and puts in place what's known as the good neighbor policy. So now we're going to stop being patronizing towards them and we're just going to be, you know, chums pick up each other's mail whatnot sounds nice yeah it sounds nice doesn't it basically an ending to direct intervention anything mm. that was ongoing in 1933 when this was announced uh was canceled within a year or two on paper their general policy towards latin america was going to be seeking mutually beneficial economic agreements mm -hmm. right let's let's trade with each other trade is good but Trade also isn't going to mean I'm going to put a country or I'm going to put a company uh, inside your sovereign borders. Right. And you're going to deal back with, them with the military <laughs> and you're going to give me your money. Right. I guess. Is what. <laughs> Anyways, here's an interesting question for you. How would you define national sovereignty? What makes a nation sovereign? Oh, boy. Put you in the hot seat here. I mean... I certainly don't know any technical definitions, but I'll, I'll help you out. This is not this is not a thing that there is one correct answer to. This is a thing that is debated ongoing to this right. day with with a lot of different schools of thought. But I mean, I, I suppose the first thing that comes to my mind is you know the ability for a nation to govern its own affairs mm -hmm. to you know not have. I mean, I, I might be kind of assuming what what you're going to be bringing up, but no, no, not have external countries meddling in in um, sure in decisions that are made, but rather the citizens of that country can make their own decisions, I yeah, suppose. The ability to pass and enforce your own laws. Totally. Yeah. Another one that's very commonly brought up is a monopoly on force. Mm -hmm. So you're the only one who has a uh, legitimate sort of social contract that everybody agrees it's okay for violence to be used by, you know, this, this organization in the enforcement of those laws. Right. The assumption there being that if uh, there's illegitimate use by the state that that's something that can be corrected through uh, either legislation or through uprisings or what have you but there's this agreement that like yeah we'll give this person the keys right right basically and then another one would be control of your own economy yep those are kind of the three 
that really get tossed around the most as a core definition. There's, like I said, lots of other ways to talk about sovereignty. A lot of them are a lot more esoteric, but in terms of like real world politics, you're looking at the ability to yeah, enforce your own laws, a monopoly on violence and control your own economy. Right. And up until the thirties, that is not something that most Latin American companies or countries have based on this level of intervention by the United States. Right. They're consistently violating the sovereignty of these nations um, for what I would argue are very, very weak reasons. Right. And it, and it seems like on all three of the dimensions you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in ways that they would never think of violating the sovereignty of certain other nations in the world, right? Right. As I said, if a if there was an American who you know say there's say, say there's a um, I don't know a Carnegie or somebody who who who's funding a railroad built in in Great Britain, they wouldn't they wouldn't dream of asking the Marines to to invade Great Britain to uh, make sure that they you know, get the margins that they're looking for, right? Right. And the government would never dream of of saying yes to a request like that right that's just not how they do it they re- they respect the sovereignty of that nation they would abide by the rules uh, the laws of that nation and if they didn't like them well i mean yeah they could they could lobby through the proper you know through the proper channels they could depending on how the the government is set up they could try to influence things through uh through voting things like that but essentially those are the same avenues that are open to any private citizen right right there isn't this going above and beyond thing. Right. And that's not what you see in, 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 in Latin America at all. There's just no concern for it whatsoever. And I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm really interested by it. It's, it's not, it's not even just like horrified by it, although there is a little bit of that. <laughs> it's also just this fascination with this disregard for the rules for me. Right. In general, this good neighbor policy this relaxation of intervention is pretty good for both sides. You know, generally speaking, you do see um, a lot of image rehabilitation through uh, even through like popular media in the United States. So they're, they're kind of asking Hollywood to cast Latin Americans more often in, in movies and shows. So you get prominent Latino actors and entertainers, you get your Carmen Miranda, you get your, Oh man, I blanked on his name. I had this. (laughs) Who's Lucille Ball's uh, husband? Oh, Ricky Ricardo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a positive representation of a of a Cuban man in in uh, American media, right? Right. Like, you 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 start getting these. It's kind of like, wow, these these are just fun people. They're just like us. There, there's a strong like cultural component of that again, and things go pretty well. I mean, through World War II, a lot of Latin American nations end up supporting the United States in in the war. Not all of them, but but most. Mm-hmm. And everything seems to be looking pretty good for Latin America for a little while. And then the war ends. And then we're into the Cold War and things really take a turn for the worse. Right. So I think here would be a really good place to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about how the fear of communism interacts with the Monroe Doctrine in in interesting ways. Sweet. Hey everyone, just a uh, quick apology about the sound quality on this last half. Um, I actually nearly lost the entire thing, so uh, I'm going to call this a victory overall, but it does sound a little bit like it was recorded inside a submarine. It's listenable, but definitely not up to 
uh, our usual standards. So sorry about that. Hope everyone's having a good holiday and we'll get right back to it. Back on HI101 here with Scott Weaver. Hey. And yeah, we've been basically did the first 50 years of 20th century and now we're getting to, how did you put it? What you've, what you've actually been looking forward to? Right. Or I mean, at least what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I can see that. I, I can see thinking this whole thing would like start with Cuba basically right. and, and, and like at the end of the Soviet Union kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. That's not how we do things around here. No. And, and I'm happy to have had the, the context, but, yeah. but now we're into it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, we're not going to be straight into, we're not going to be straight into Cuba either. That's not how that works either. We got to talk about why Cuba. Right. We got to talk about what's going on with Cuba. Because the, the interesting thing about Cuba is that when the Cuban revolution starts in the fifties, it's not an explicitly communist revolution. Right. It's not going to get there until fairly, like fairly far on in the, in the fighting. And the reason that it ends up going that way is sort of what we're going to talk about first so yeah I, the the end of world war ii everybody knows this whole couple of sentences but the whole you know nazis are defeated everybody's happy but the soviet union was dominant in the war and they were allies of convenience for the west but now they're really worried about just how dominant they were and they're concerned about essentially the next big conflict being the West against the Soviet Union. And at that point in time, they're not necessarily confident that they'd be able to win that right. that conflict because, yeah, the Soviet Union just has a lot of people, just like a lot of people and just outrageous industrial output. And it, it's it's just a complete machine, right? It's to the point where you see military gear that's designed in the late 40s, early 50s by the West that's designed basically with... Okay, so the next fight's going to be in Eastern Germany, basically. So what kind of gear do we need to fight there? Like, it's it's explicitly designed with that in mind, right? right? And, like, everybody's so certain it's going to go that way. The other thing that you have to keep in mind in the late 40s, early 50s, in terms of, like, the Red Scare, is something that's known as Vanguard Theory. And it's the specific type of Marxist-Leninist thought that the Soviet Union is operating under at that point in time. Now, once you get to Stalin, it's less like explicitly policy within the Soviet Union, but up until then, it's been very explicit and it takes a little while for these things to catch on. Vanguard theory is this idea that you don't wait for the communist revolution to come just spring up. Mm. You need to go in and you need to make it happen. Right. And that's where you get Lenin in 1917 in Russia coming in and like explicitly overthrowing the government in the interest of setting up a Marxist uh, government. Mm -hmm. The idea that the Soviet Union is going to go around toppling governments and installing communist ones, the fear of that is further exacerbated by potential communism scares in Greece and in Turkey in the first couple of years after the war. And then you get to um, China. China falls. I did three parts about China a couple, <laughs> couple of months ago. Uh, I'm not going to bother trying to summarize it, but China goes communist. And after a few scares and then the real thing, the West in general is really concerned about the, the spread of communism, right? And 
you get what's known as the Truman Doctrine. The new new U.S. president, Harry Truman, basically pledges to it, it's it's something known as containment. It's basically we'll fight communism wherever it springs up. Right. We can't allow it to continue to spread because whether it's spreading to you know a little tiny country that is is quote unquote insignificant on the on the world field or world stage, or if it's China with nearly a billion people at that point in time. Like either one is a blow against democracy is kind of the the thinking here, right? Right. And so they make a zero tolerance policy against communism. No communism. We're not not allowing it to spread. And this policy is going to shape foreign policy decisions for the next four to five decades. Right. You could look at it the same way you could look at like a wedge political issue. It doesn't matter what else is going on. Is it communism is the first question. And if the answer is yes, you're against it. Right. If the answer is maybe, you're against it. <laughs> Anything but a hard no is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. You finally get to Korea, right? Like the Korean War in, in 1950. And the U.S. actually rolls in like the full like U.N. defense force against uh, North Korea to, to try and stem this uh, this red tide. It, it's like a global effort to keep all of Korea from from collapsing, from going communist. And it really shows the Eastern Bloc at that point how serious the West is about uh, containing communism. They're willing to go to bat for Korea, which is fairly small and, uh, you know, in the in, in the 50s, extremely poor. Right. Korea as a, as a as an economic force is, is a relatively recent uh, development, but the um, sort of the political will to make containment like a very real thing is, is extremely strong. There's something completely separate from all of this happening in Latin America at this point in time, uh, because they're very far away from the Soviet union or from China. There's really no impetus there to go communist, right? What is happening is that, sort of inward-facing economic reform that we talked about just before the break, right? This abandonment after the, the Great Depression and, and this, uh, this turn towards uh, modernization, towards uh, manufacturing technologies, things like that. Mm -hmm. After the Depression, American business interests don't go away in Latin America. There's still quite a number of fairly strong ones, but a number of them do decrease quite a bit so anything that would be along the lines of like a very wealthy american who's just sort of set up a, a business in latin america that they don't like they're really hands off but that just kind of sits there and pumps money back their way a lot of those would have uh withered under the great depression because right. those guys would have all lost their entire fortunes on the stock market and had to sell all of that just to get by right a lot of those are replaced instead by a relatively small not quite a ruling class exactly, but uh, there, there's a small number of, of very wealthy people within these Latin American countries who start taking over these businesses. And then they're just becoming wealthy within their own nation rather than other people outside of it becoming wealthy. And what people in general start seeing is they actually see the wealth inequality in front of them rather than having it be like an abstract that everyone's sort of against in practice or against in theory but can't really do anything about in practice right and general sort of social sentiment becomes more what we would probably more accurately describe as socialists in that 
more and more importance is put on things like investing in education, investing in healthcare, some state-owned economy or state-owned industries that are stimulating the economy through, you know, some mild government uh, controls that will make sure that money's put into developing infrastructure and giving people jobs through those programs, like very like New Deal style, like economic uh, stimulation. The problem is that a lot of the stuff that FDR would have put into place under the New Deal looks awfully pink to some folks now. <laughs> and it's very easy in this in this first little bit of the Cold War for Americans to look at what's happening in Central America, in South America, in the Caribbean and go, ah, that looks kind of communist to me. What if this is making these countries more vulnerable to Soviet meddling, mm-hmm. I guess? Mm-hmm. And this is just my own editorializing but i also think that there's a sense that you know i I think that people know to some extent how much american meddling has already happened in these places and that there's not a lot of love lost towards the united states right which makes them a little bit more concerned i think about how easily they could be dropped by these allies if other opportunities presented themselves how explicit that is i'm not entirely sure uh, as I said, that's that's I'm not basing that on a lot, but <laughs> I, I think I think people are a little more savvy to that sort of thing than than sometimes give them credit for. Right, and I think it would have played some uh, part in their calculation of like how likely are we to lose these allies? Right, it would make sense if if they were bestie friends, you mm-hmm. you know probably wouldn't be as worried. Well, I mean, this isn't far off from the timing when when we're starting to put universal health care in place in Canada. Right, right. we're not quite there, but you know. We're, we're on their borders and we're putting a bunch of lefty ideas into place. And <laughs> I mean, what's the difference, right? Yeah. Well, speak English. Yeah. Uh, you know, we never, Canada, Canada benefits from the Monroe Doctrine in that nobody would dream of invading Canada. Right. Because the United States would, would defend us. It, it, not, not just because of our good relationship with the United States, but because they wouldn't tolerate a uh, outside power having a new little colony on their northern border oh totally like even if the if canada and the united states weren't as close mm-hmm. you know no one wants a potential enemy on the world's largest unprotected border right yeah. and and people at the time were very uh in canada were very open about that fact that this is a good thing for canada right for for lots of reasons for our own protection for the ability it gave us to sort of contribute to the british empire at the time because mm-hmm. we could take our entire army and send it over to flanders to uh to fight the germans right. because uh we're not worried about defending our own borders so yeah. we can send them off to help britain uh you know little things like that but we're you know it, it's it's a very different type of benefit than you know, they found out that we elected so-and-so and they're not too happy about it. So they're going to go ahead and <laughs> just overthrow the entire government and put a military uh, dictatorship in place because oh, at least they're friendly to the U.S. Right. That's uh, what we're looking at coming up here. Very different. Very different. So, so yeah, you, you do have this socialist bent. And I don't think that it's an explicitly, I don't think, I know that it's not an explicitly Marxist philosophy that's 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 blooming everywhere it's not as though there weren't proponents of marxism but there there's communists everywhere at this point in time there's always going to be a kind of thing yeah um it's it's a matter of critical mass right 
the U.S. asks Latin American countries to sign pledges against communism in this era and uh, is, is a part of sort of a what they call the hemispheric defense. Mm. No, no communism allowed in the Western Hemisphere. Sure, there's a couple of them over in the you know over in Asia, but th that's far away. We don't want it on our doorstep, kind of thing, right? right? But at the same time, you start having these countries that are, you know, looking at this uh, American intervention. There's places that are still under fruit company control that are unhappy, and like, yeah, they're not going to not sign that uh, that agreement. Are you crazy? But at the same time, not all of them are that interested in abiding by it. Specifically in the early '50s. You know, the Mexican Revolution had given a lot of them a blueprint for nationalization, right? Mexico had actually nationalized its uh, petroleum industry in 1938, and it was actually doing quite well for itself. It had done so using, well, basically a bunch of British companies came in, gave them all the tech and the know-how, and then they nationalized it and kept it all for <laughs> itself. But again, their, their constitution explicitly says that they're allowed to do so, right? That's right, like that's, yeah. That's the kind of fine print that you want to read before you go investing in a country like Mexico, where you're not entirely sure, you know, that's the kind of thing that would normally keep an industry from, from investing somewhere. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like, haha, BP or whoever it was that got burned, you know, should, should have had the fine print, but you know, at the same time, nothing that they did there was necessarily illegal, maybe just a little sneaky. Right. And yeah. It was working out really well. And a lot of people were looking at Mexico and going, well, they seem really successful. Actually, maybe this is something that we should consider for ourselves. In 1954, Guatemala, who was actually still controlled largely by United Fruit, had a revolution. There was a U.S.-backed dictator who was overthrown in a military coup, uh, and they installed a new president, democratically elected guy named Arbenz, and he, he, was, he was a socialist. He was all of these things we've been talking about, interested in agrarian reform, making sure that people actually had their own land to work for subsistence, interested in education, stuff like that. So the CIA had been created in 1947. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's wild when you look at the actual mandate of the CIA because mostly they're about collecting intelligence, right? It's very, like, passive kind of mandates that are put in place. Basically, right away, they start meddling in international affairs. Now, Guatemala isn't their first one. The first, you know, the honor kind of goes to the uh, reinstatement of the Shah in Iran. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and nothing bad came of that. <laughs> that operation was actually run by Teddy Roosevelt's grandson, interestingly enough. Oh, wow. Yeah, those Roosevelt's like getting their fingers in a lot of parts. Right. <laughs> uh, so this new CIA, they decide that what they're going to do is in Guatemala, like the United Fruit Company basically goes back to the U.S. government and says, listen, our lands are being taken away by the state and they're going to just be divvied up and given up to the peasants or whatever this seems a lot like communism to me isn't there something you guys can do about it right and they go yeah that does sound like communism and they send the cia down because they just have so had so much uh success in iran uh let's give it a go in guatemala so they arm and train almost 500 uh guerrilla fighters in honduras and they start with psyops they start like dropping propaganda out of planes they start whip, whisper campaigns you know this is all the stuff that the guatemalan you know this is all the stuff that our benz is going to do to you once he gets in power kind of stuff uh they actually have like explicit like bombing raids like they bomb military installations to try and weaken them it is like all-out warfare it's everything but actually rolling in there with you know uniformed military troops right which would be against the good neighbor policy by the way we don't <laughs> we don't do that anymore right did that plenty of in the past, but 
that, that's a different era right we, we can't operate <laughs> that way anymore come on um essentially what ends up happening is they find a pro-us faction within the guatemalan army armies tend to be very like conservative organizations conservative in like a, a small c sense and that right. they they resist change and that they tend to sort of go against any major societal shifts they they want to maintain some sort of order and when all of society is is kind of shifting against order military is often one place that outside forces can find a large group of people that are not terribly happy with those shifts mm-hmm. what's more um, remember we talked about these criteria for uh, sovereignty, right? What's more, they do have a lot of ability to exert force. Right. Right. So if you have people there who are willing to enforce laws and they have the ability to exert force, all you're really missing here is control over the economy. And boy, is it easy to destabilize one of these economies if you're, you're in the United States, right? right? So really all it takes is going to one of these uh, generals, usually. In this case, it was actually a colonel, uh, Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas, and say, we're going to give you, you know, bombing raid support. We're going to give you uh, propaganda support. We're going to uh, help destabilize the economy so that uh, our Benz looks bad. All you need to do is seize power. And once you're in... We will recognize you on the world stage, which is really important to a new uh, regime. Mm-hmm. We will provide you with economic support. We will provide you with trade support. No problem. All you need to do is step up and make it happen. There has never been an easier coup in the history of coups than that, right? The United States is, in, in 1954, one of two major powers that can actually make any of this happen. Right. You know, even a couple of decades before, sure, maybe Germany could have done something about it. Maybe Great Britain could have done something about it. France, they're all ruined by the war. Yeah. They're in economic shambles right now. They can't step in. And the Soviet Union is not really that interested in getting involved there. So it's the United States or it's nothing. More or less. So Armas is handed control. There's a civil war that results. It is extraordinarily bloody. As many as 200,000 Guatemalans are killed in the fighting. Wow. It's going to stretch on for some time. It's a botched job. It's not, I mean, we're talking about coups here, but as, as far as coups go, it's not well done. It's not bloodless. It's, it's, it's a really, really destabilizing, terrible time for Guatemala. They were very heavy-handed with the whole thing. Mm. So it wasn't as easy as it should have been, given all of the yeah. advantages you, you stated. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the biggest problems there is that when they went into Iran, uh, there were a lot of people who supported the the Shah. They there were there were a lot of people who wanted uh, the type of change that the uh, CIA was offering. Right. It was easy to get support, and this is a lesson that the CIA really struggles to learn over the Cold War. Um, you need grassroots support to make one of these things work well. Right. A lot of Guatemalans were really really happy with our bends. They were fine with the direction the country was going. He was elected to do all those things, right? right? Yeah, there were people who disagreed, but it wasn't an overwhelming force the way that you had in other places. So, yeah, the the fighting goes on a long time. It's it's really terrible. There's an Argentinian doctor uh, who happens to be in Guatemala at the time uh, named Ernesto Guevara, sometimes called Che. Right. And he's been traveling South America He's been seeing what the whole place is like. He's seeing a lot of inequality. He's been reading a lot of stuff. He's more or less convinced that communism is the way forward for Latin America. And 
what he sees in Guatemala solidifies this belief that revolutionary Marxism is the solution. Mm. Because what he sees happen in Guatemala is a democratically elected progressive leader overthrown by the United States and a military dictator installed in its place. I can understand how that would be very disheartening. Right. Uh, yeah, this is this is something that he pointed to as um, kind of the no turning back point for him in his own life. He continued on in this trip to Mexico City where he met one uh, Raul Castro, brother Fidel Castro. And this is where he gets hooked up with the Cuban revolutionary movement. Yeah, the Cuban revolution. So what's happening there, as, as I mentioned before, is that it's not an explicitly communist revolution when it starts, but it did have nationalization elements as all these other kind of Latin American, Latin American movements did at this point in time. Mm -hmm. You know, Cuba had been not explicitly colonized by the United States after the, the Spanish-American War. We, as we talked about last time, they, they kind of weren't allowed, but they had also given themselves permission to intervene at any point in time. And the leader in 1953, when this revolution starts, uh, Fulgencio Batista, is completely corrupt, very pro-U.S., but, you know, only in a is-not-communist sort of way, not in a liberty-and-democracy type of way. Right, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's a trade-off they're going to be willing to make time and time again in this era. They don't care as much about political freedoms, about personal freedoms, about democracy, even about a properly, you know, capitalist economy as they do about it not being a communist and not being aligned with the Soviet Union. Right. Those are the main criteria. And it's interesting because there's other places in the world where moral judgments aside, they are trying to actively foster democratic action. Mm -hmm. They kind of don't care about Latin America unless it looks like they might be going red. Right. At, at which point they'll go in, intervene, stop whatever is happening that they don't like and start ignoring it again. Right. There is rampant corruption. There's rampant inequality. Basically, these dictatorships that are going into place, what you have are these very wealthy, very powerful men who have militaries who are personally loyal to them getting into power, sometimes making a sham of democracy, sometimes not even bothering with it, mm -hmm. and lining their own pockets with money of every sort. They have businesses that they legitimately own. They have sources of income that are completely illegitimate. They're skimming off of the taxes. They're skimming off of foreign aid that's coming in to help legitimately needy people within their country. Mm -hmm. It's it's a complete racket. But as long as they say, oh yeah, no, US, you guys rule. We hate the Soviets. Nobody's going to bat an eye at it. Right. And so you have this interesting thing where it's like, yeah, we intervene in the domestic affairs of Latin America and make sure everybody's good, but they don't. Right. They they, they do the intervening part, but not the, the everyone's good part. Right. Yeah. 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 It's well, yeah, it's a matter of like what triggers the the intervention, right? Yeah. Like it's it, it, the bar seems to be very 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 low. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of rough stuff. Anyways, Cuban Revolution, as I said, starts in 1953 and it's very much like a let's get Batista out of power mm. sort of thing. Uh, we don't want U.S. influence anymore. It's been 50 years. This is ridiculous at this point in time. We want a Cuba for Cuba. And yeah, it, it starts off, you know, it's things like we're going to 
you know, we're going to nationalize the uh, the sugar industry, and that's going to be for the benefit of all Cubans. And it's kind of like, well, what about all these American uh, sugar companies? You know, what what did they ever do to you guys? <laughs> Lots of bad stuff. But anyways, as the Cuban Revolution progresses, uh, it runs basically 1953 to about 1959 or so. In, in a pretty steady progression, they take over, ending with uh, Fidel Castro in power. And basically, every time Castro nationalizes some industry, the United States takes away trade of that industry, mm. uh, plus additional uh, embargoes. And it's kind of like, well, we're just going to bleed you guys dry economically, right? And the more that they take away and the more that Castro nationalizes, the more that Marxist rhetoric starts entering his vocabulary. Right. Now, he's known... Che Guevara for a couple of years now, and he's more than happy to help out the Castros with the uh, the Marxism and angle of things. Also a very valuable like military commander in the revolution, but like he always sort of saw himself as as much as like a, a teacher as as a, a military commander, mm. and he spends all his downtime like talking to the soldiers about Marxism as well as you know. Spanish poetry and and economics and 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 you know just teaching them to read. A lot of them are illiterate and and all of this stuff. As Cuba gets cut off from more and more stuff from the United States as main trading partner, its economy starts suffering more and more. Until finally, they're not really trading with the United States at all. They're cut off in 1960. So they reach out to the Soviet Union and go, "Well, can we just trade with you guys instead?" Right. And they go, "Sure." Yeah, yeah. Where, where else are they going to go, I suppose? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. But, you know, the Soviet Union's looking at this as, like, foothold in North America? Yes, please. Right. Helping out a tiny island nation? Absolutely, let's do this thing. Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to tick off the Americans. Why not? <laughs> uh, things, are, things are probably the frostiest that the Cold War is going to get mm. in 1960 or so. And, like, the Americans are all, like, surprised that they go to the Soviet Union. <laughs> like, what else are they going to do? Like, let their economy collapse, put in a military dictator and yeah. say you know apologize to the united states basically like push them into their arms right yeah i don't know it's it's well yeah it's yeah where else are they gonna go mm. that's that's all there is to it because those embargoes weren't just on direct like american to cuban trade like mm -hmm. there are threats mostly implicit threats but there are threats against other latin american nations not to trade with cuba right right they're exerting as much economic pressure as they possibly can and that's that's the tool that they have available to them i suppose mm -hmm. but there is this sort of self-righteous indignance about like, well, what do you mean you wouldn't want to trade with us? What do you mean you want to go your own way? What do you mean you want a different system? Like they right. seem really surprised. It's that, that benevolent, you know, imperialism again, right? Of, well, but you don't want to be on our side? Yeah. They're a little bit confused by it. <laughs> this leads to one of the biggest disasters in CIA history. It's not the biggest, but it's up there. I'm sure you've heard of the Bay of Pigs invasion. Yeah. It started planning in 1960, but it doesn't go through until Kennedy has taken over. About 1,400 insurgents are trained by the CIA on American soil with the idea that they're going to get to Cuba armed and trained and become like the core of this anti-Castro uprising. And the entire assumption behind this thing is that the, the Cuban people don't want a, a communist government. And so once they get there, that's enough uh, insurgents to hold off the Cuban army uh, until people start flocking to this core and build up like an actual armed 
uh, revolt against Castro. Mm -hmm. Lots of things go wrong with this invasion. We don't have time to get into the whole thing, but essentially they get there and no one's really that interested in joining in. Right. The operation itself is also really terribly mismanaged. Kennedy was pretty fresh to the whole thing. There was some... You know, they, they were supposed to have some air support that doesn't show up until like way too late. Mm. Uh, it's 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 a complete disaster. It's exposed that it's American trained troops that are doing this. Like the whole thing is is laid bare. Every like the whole world knows what's happened here. So, you know, the idea was that there's this plausible deniability of like, oh, the Cuban people are rising up. We didn't know about this, but we will definitely support them. Um, no, no, they they. <laughs> It's it's exposed that they're CIA trained, right. um, and you know if there was ever a time where Castro might have thought about returning to the American fold, I, I you know it goes right out the door with that, right? Right, that kind of sealed the deal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's also the fact that you know over the course of you know 50 years or so, the CIA is going to attempt assassination of Castro over 600 times. 600 yeah wow that's that's the one count that i found <laughs> yeah they never succeed uh i don't you know it's 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 bizarre they they castro was such a thorn in their side for so long they couldn't stand the fact that there was a communist leader that close off the shore right because right. cuba is very very close to, to to florida yeah like extremely close and it oh man it bothered them <laughs> oh it bothered them this leads us straight to the cuban missile crisis uh 1962 Basically, what happens here is, you know, for some context, the United States has had nuclear missiles in Eastern Europe for ages at this point in time, pointed directly at Russia. It's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's been a constant threat for them. So the Soviet Union calls up Castro and goes, hey, do you mind if we install some missiles on your island? It'll keep you safer. It'll keep, keep us safer. Everybody will be happy. Castro says, sure, why not? Sees the merits to it. Mm-hmm. Um, before the missiles get there, American intelligence gets word that there's Soviet vessels with nuclear warheads en route to Cuba. And it's just like the world is ending. Like it's it's an extremely tense time. And yeah, basically, Kennedy has to negotiate with Khrushchev to make sure that the missiles don't end up in Cuba. It's very, very, very close uh, at certain points here to either side launching nuclear missiles at the other right it is it is very close this is it is one of the closest moments in world history to like complete nuclear annihilation right again it's a it's a really interesting story to get into the the details of it we don't really have the time for it today but you know it ends with the the soviets backing down taking the missiles out yeah i always i always found it interesting just how close american missiles are to russia and and how that was fine anyways it's it's also very understandable how panic inducing it is to find out that those missiles are on the way oh totally um extremely tense situation that's that's kind of the closest you get to soviet direct military intervention in north america during the cold war Mm. and things kind of warm up a little bit after that both sides realize that they kind of need to well, first of all, both sides realize that the other's not actually willing to pull the trigger unless they absolutely have to, which transitions nuclear policy into um, mutually assured, uh, mutually assured destruction uh, assumption, base assumption about how the other side will act. Right. Uh, neither of us want to launch nukes, but if nukes have been launched, each side will and will blow each other up. Right. 
but it's also kind of a moment of failing for that Truman doctrine, right? The, the, uh, a failure to spread uh, or fa- failure to contain rather the spread of communism, a failure to uh, maintain the integrity of that Western hemisphere. Yeah. Cuba's going to bother everybody for a long time. Che Guevara is killed in 1967 in Bolivia. He's attempting to get a Bolivian communist revolt going at the time. Um, it's actually not going all that well, but CIA forces managed to capture him. And one of them ends up summarily executing him in the jungle, basically. Uh, they were planning on taking him back to Panama for a trial, but uh, yeah, they took matters into their own hands. Wow. Yeah. Complicated guy. Uh, again, something I don't really have time to get into today. Everyone always asks me like what I think of Che Guevara and I never really know how to answer that question. I don't know. He's, he's, if nothing else, I think he's one of the best examples out there of how people are really, really, really complicated. And it's really (laughs) difficult to say that somebody's done, you know, somebody was good or somebody was not good. Right. Um, I I can tell you, he would have hated edgy teens wearing his face on, on (laughs) t-shirts. Um, that is what I think of though. Yeah, are of those, course. Are those T-shirts? Look, that... it's an iconic photo. Oh, absolutely. It, it is. It is completely understandable why so many people latch onto that photo. Mm. It's, it's very, very compelling. Makes a good T-shirt, but I imagine most of those teenagers have no idea the context. Oh my goodness, I don't know where to begin. I, 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 I don't know the context. It's, it's, <laughs> it's too complicated, right? He's too complicated a guy. He, I, I think, I, I mean, on one hand, he, he, just on the face of it, just killed a lot of people. Right. You know, he's a revolutionary. Um, and a militant one at that. And it's not as though you can say, well, they were all combatants. No, they were, they were civilians. Right. On the other hand, I think that he truly did believe that he was working the best interests of all Latin Americans. And I, I don't know how to, I, I don't think you can reconcile those two things. It's, it's a really, really complicated legacy. Right. Um, but yeah, in any case, let's, let's not spend too much time on that. There's, there's a lot of other stuff to go over. I am skipping interventions, by the way. Like, there's a lot of stuff. Like, we don't have time to talk about every time the CIA or the United States in general gets involved in something. Right. Sounds like they're America. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> man. It's, it's so bad. So what I want to do is focus on, like, a couple more, like, the ones you should really know. Mm. Like, the ones that, like, it, it's very, very helpful to know about if you're talking about Latin America um, in a modern context, in a historical context, all of that. So let's start with Chile. Between the 1960s, like the mid-1960s and the early 1970s, a number of Latin American countries had fallen to military coups. After seeing kind of direct uh, intervention in Cuba and a couple other countries like uh, like Brazil, there were a lot of military dictators who sort of saw the writing in, on the wall in terms of the amount of support they could expect from the United States if they shot their shot, basically. And they went for it. They they toppled a number of democratically elected governments and and installed themselves as rulers. So, kind of an older word that they they used to use was caudillos. It's it's someone who has both uh, military and political power. Mm. You know, in, in the twentieth century, they'd refer to them more as like military juntas. Uh, the one country, well, not the one, but the the a very notable country that bucks against this trend is Chile. In nineteen seventy a man named uh, Salvador Allende is elected to president of Chile. And he is the first open, explicit Marxist president to be elected in a Western democracy. So they vote in a communist. Wow. 
and he runs on honestly it's it's not a platform that is that much different than what i've been talking about in terms of like latin american socialism mm-hmm. uh, he is running on a platform of let's get the economy under control through government control uh, let's work on education. Let's work work on healthcare. Let's work on uh, attempting to eliminate economic disparities. Stuff that would not necessarily look that out of place in a political campaign today, right? Except that it's not today. It's 1970, and that makes all the difference in the world. It's 1970, and it's Latin America. This plan that he has, he's he's it's it's known as the Chilean way to democracy. Or sorry, yeah, Chilean way to democracy. It's like an incremental socialism. It's it's yes, we're going to put more uh, controls in place, but we're going to do so in a way that is planned, in a way that's fair, in a way that's tolerable. Like immediately, the United States cuts off aid. It cuts off all trade to Chile now. It does not directly intervene in like an explicit military way, the way you would have expected in Cuba or in the good neighbor era. If you were to ask uh, officials about it, they would say, no, I'm just going to let Chile do its thing. We're hoping it doesn't succeed because that would be success, you know, setting a, a fairly dangerous precedent. And we don't think that socialism is the best thing for societies, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're, you know, they're a sovereign nation. They can do what they want, you know, that kind of thing, right? There is significant internal opposition to Allende. There are a lot of people who are not convinced that his brand of socialism is the uh, best way for Chile to succeed moving forward. But he goes ahead with it fairly briskly, actually. And some people are pointing to that as like, oh, he's breaking all the rules. Like, this is maybe not exactly what we signed up for. There are other people who have pointed out, well, he has a six-year term. There's only so much he can do in six years. He's trying to get as much progress as possible to show that what he's proposing is a valid path to success. Right. And there are actually some really interesting improvements that happen in his uh, in his time there. Like literacy rates go up immensely under the education programs that he hasn't uh, put in place. But he is he is moving fast and breaking things, and it's it's kind of it's not everybody's cup of tea. The Senate actually in Chile is fairly opposed to the way he's doing business. It's a little more conservative and they actually end up uh, accusing him of acting uh, unconstitutionally. There's a, there's also a failed coup in June of 1973 really shakes his confidence, but also shakes the people's confidence in the government. It's kind of like, okay, you know, on his part, he's kind of like, people are trying to assassinate me. This is, this is crazy. It's probably the U S Maybe it's my own people. I don't know. I was I'm getting ask, scared. Wait, was it U.S. backed or? Yes and no. <laughs> we'll we'll get to the we'll get to the U.S. involvement in a second. All right. No, that coup was not U.S. backed explicitly. Mm. Now, what the U.S. is doing is acting behind the scenes to make sure that Chile is destabilized as much as possible. All stuff that they're going to completely deny, obviously, but. Ever since 1970, yeah, they have been like working against Allende mm-hmm. in kind of clandestine ways. So anything that's going to help with destabilization, they're, again, psyops, like propaganda stuff, like whisper campaigns. There's something that's known as black propaganda, which is really interesting. What they would do is develop propaganda that looks like it was made by Allende's team and then leak it 
to the rest of Chile to make it seem like, okay, well, they're saying one thing publicly. Here's what they're saying to actual party supporters. Here's what they're saying behind closed doors. Yes, they promised that, you know, things are going to be great for you if they, you know, privatize the entire copper industry, which is the, you know, the kind of thing that they were working on. But, you know, actually they're planning on, uh, you know, taking over all the copper mines themselves and making a fortune and leaving you all behind in the dust. And, you know, like it's stuff like that. But making it look like Allende had actually, or his team had actually written it, but it wasn't. It was it was completely false. It's a really insidious type of propaganda. Right. But, like, fairly effective. Like, you know, man, it would be so much easier today than 1973. I, I was just thinking, like, Facebook ads. Oh, honestly. <laughs> yo, yo, we're in, like, we're so far ahead of the game in terms of, like, if the CIA had the tools they have today mm. in the 70s, the stuff they would be getting up to in Latin America would be just unreal right like it's yeah it's it's crazy man they're you know they're also doing stuff like they're they're attempting to bribe government officials like legislature uh, people in legislature to like disrupt government goings on they're contacting military officials and not telling them to do coups but (laughs) you know letting them know that in the event of a coup they would support them uh, like materially like provide weapons provide support Um, not saying them you know, should do a coup, but like if you were to just, do a coup, just in cases. <laughs> if you <laughs> got, some, needed, got some guns on a boat over here, if you ever needed to know what would happen in the case of doing <laughs> a coup, uh, here's how to look from our end. Um, you know, it's it's very um, uh, how to put it. None of it is direct. Mm. There's a lot of talking to people though, and a lot of vague promises. Right. It's very informational, and so no, the coup attempt. The unsuccessful coup attempt in June 1973 wasn't direct American military action, but they absolutely did everything they could to create the circumstances which would be friendly to a coup attempt. Mm -hmm. You know, stuff like that. By August of 1973, Allende is wrapped up in this constitutional crisis. Like I said, they they basically accuse him of of acting unconstitutionally in in all of these uh, economic changes that he's making. And then uh, you get to September of 1973, and there's a second coup attempt, this time by a general, Augusto Pinochet. And this one is successful. It's very violent, too. Like, they, they like, bomb the, the presidential residence, or is it the legislature? I'd have to double-check on that. I can't remember. There are bombings. There's, you know, right. tanks. There's, yeah, the whole nine yards. Uh, Allende ends up committing suicide, wow. question mark. <laughs> it's still undetermined. Right. Uh, it's one of those like the official story is that he like uh, shot himself with a rifle sort of thing but there's some evidence that shows it might not have been right it might have been an execution anyways it's it's all very messy either way Allende is dead and Pinochet is in power uh, this dictatorship would last until 1990 so 17 years under this man it would really only end because the sham democracy that he put in place required a uh you know in in 1980 required a a vote for his presidency again in 1988 and he couldn't he couldn't properly fix the the vote wow and in that period carter i guess was still president and he really carter was like the one president in this era that didn't really go for the sure let's support uh horrible human rights violating military dictatorship just because they're not communists so 
you know, he, he wasn't really willing to step in to help uh, Pinochet and the U.S. government was concerned that there could be uh, like a revolt, like there was enough popular sentiment against the guy that they didn't think they could, you know, clandestinely, like without Carter's explicit support, keep Pinochet in power. So, yeah, he ended up being voted out. But, yeah, it's 17 years of this guy all based on, you know, these these conditions that the, the United States creates, right? There's a bunch of other military coups, uh, you know, before and after this time. But by 1975, virtually all of South America is under some sort of military dictatorship. That's crazy. And the CIA decides to jump on this. They create something. I mean, it was running before this, but the the version that we're talking about now really solidifies in like 1975. It's something known as Operation Condor. Under CIA leadership and CIA resources, the intelligence agencies of all of these countries in South America, like we're talking Chile, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, Colombia, Peru, Venezuela, all of these countries are pooling resources, uh, intelligence resources, and getting support from the CIA specifically to quash any sort of leftist political behavior. Wow. They're monitoring people. They are arresting people. They're executing people. Um, they're torturing people. Anyone who is showing even the remotest hint of potentially destabilizing these right-wing military dictatorships that are at least pro-US, so right. CIA is fine with it. They're working together to, to suppress all of this. The numbers are impossible to calculate because... It's it's not just the CIA. It's it's a bunch of secret intelligence programs that are doing this. Some with full knowledge of the CIA, some without, which is almost more terrifying in a certain way. <laughs> right. I've seen numbers along the lines of like sixty thousand people killed wow. under Operation Condor. Uh, you know, under that umbrella in some way. Right. And I've seen as high as like four hundred thousand plus uh, imprisoned based on intelligence gathered under this operation. Wow. As political prisoners. Yeah, so Latin America is very much locked down in the 70s by this intelligence gathering. It's really spooky stuff. Yeah. It's really spooky stuff. The other one we have to talk about is Nicaragua. Right. The Somoza family had been in power since the 1830s, or sorry, the 1930s, not the 1830s, geez, but basically since the last time the U.S. had been like directly involved in Nicaragua. Mm. Um, this one family had held power and and just... Again, pro-U.S., corrupt as all get out, you know, the usual stuff. There's actually an overthrow, a violent overthrow, by a group called the Sandinistas in 1979. Uh, they're named after uh, a man named Augusto Sandino. He was the guy who helped drive out the American forces the last time in the 1930s. And so they, they modeled their, their group after him. And the Sandinistas start off as a, like a revolutionary group, like, like guerrilla warriors. Mm -hmm. But when they managed to drive out the Somozas, they managed to convert this into like a legitimate government in Nicaragua, which is kind of interesting. Nicaragua was in just rough shape at this point. There'd been a, an earthquake in 1972 that had just devastated the economy. It was it was really disruptive. Uh, the Somozas had been bleeding them dry for decades. Uh, Nicaragua was in terrible shape, and it was one of those kind of like, sure, let's give these guys. Let's give these guys a shot. You right. know, can't be worse than the status quo kind of thing. Kinda, yeah. And again, when they got in place, the progressive reforms that they started making showed results really quickly. 
you know, it's it's kind of interesting how giving people the ability to scrape a living out of the earth is is kind of that's that's not something a lot of these places have before the revolution. That's that's what they're aspiring to with these groups. Right. And it's relatively easy to give people with some redistribution and it makes people very, very happy. Mm-hmm. You start adding in healthcare and education and a nation can make really, really quick strides. Obviously, this cannot stand. <laughs> the CIA cannot stand for this. And almost as quickly as the as the Sandinistas managed to form government, the uh, what's known as the Contra movement springs up. I've seen Contra Sandinista or Contra Revolucionaire as as sources for that. It's just Contra. They just shorten it up. It's too right. long. Yeah, it's it's these well armed rebels, like surprisingly well armed rebels that spring up. Weirdly enough, on the Honduras border, you know, it's huh huh. <laughs> weird, weird how that happens. You know, Nicaragua is in civil war for a good chunk of the 80s as a result. And the Contras are extremely well uh, equipped. And, you know, I actually had a, a full episode on the Iran-Contra scandal much, much earlier on, but I think it holds up relatively well. Essentially what it turns out, we'll try and keep it short because it does get really complicated. What it turns out that the CIA has been doing is, you know, their budget, they only have a, a limited amount of like, off the books budget that they can use right and you know all these coups man they get so expensive (laughs) it adds up it really adds up and unless you want to go to so so your options are do it on the books where congress can see what you're doing and we can't have that right ask for an increase to the black budget which is really hard to get because you can't justify it because then it's not a black budget (laughs) right or find some creative ways to make money in this case we're in the middle of the uh iran iraq war And while the United States officially supports Iraq in this conflict, Iran does have like a weapons embargo against it. And they realize that they can sell U.S. weapons to Iran through an Israeli arms dealer. Use that money. Initially, they were just doing this to get um, hostages, Iranian hostages back. But they realized that all the money that they were making was just kind of going into a slush fund and they weren't really using it for anything. Right. So they realized they can sell weapons to Iran, use the profits from their gun running to support the Contras in Nicaragua. So they're selling weapons to Iran, yeah, but officially backing Iraq in the war. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All for that sweet, sweet cash. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> CIA man, man, Hang just on. gathering intelligence all over the that place. Episode. That's that's unreal. Yeah, it's it's wild. It's 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 quite the story. You know, officially Reagan didn't know anything about it, and uh, Oliver North takes the fall for it. I'm sure you've heard the name around, right? But it does come out in in public. People discover what's going on here, mostly because the CIA did a really bad job of hiding it domestically. <laughs> like it's it's yeah, it's not well kept. It's a it's it's this whole scandal in U.S. politics. But but until it's discovered, all of this money is just being funneled into Honduras to train these insurgents that then go across the border into Nicaragua and fight the uh, the Sandinistas, mm. which you know it kind of turns out that most people kind of preferred because they weren't trying to scrape every penny out of them and gave them some education. Yeah. 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 It's wild how that works. <laughs> Communism, man. <laughs> now, now did they describe themselves as communist no. or were they, they were just like socialists? Yeah. 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 
Um, but they weren't aligned to the Soviets or anything. No, not at all. But again, this is one of those. This is one of those things where, like, initially they're not. I shouldn't say they weren't aligned with the Soviets. They weren't initially aligned with the Soviets. They weren't explicitly aligned with communists. However, what does happen is when everything's like cut off. No, you know what? I'm actually thinking of Chile, um, not not uh, not Nicaragua. I forgot to mention this about Chile. They were buying stuff from the Soviet Union. Mm. But we're talking like tractors. Right. Because they couldn't buy American tractors and they didn't have the capacity to build them. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that warrants like, let's overthrow them, right? <laughs> Sorry, no, that's that's not Nicaragua though. I got I got confused. No, they're they're not they're not aligned with, with the Soviet Union in any way, shape, or form. It's just that by doing all of this, they're aligning themselves against the United States, right. sort, of, sort of. And this is the this is the cold war man like this is this is where you get like the three world like theory right like the first world is is the west and the second world is the is the soviet aligned world and the third world is everybody else and right if you're not aligned with the west then like what even are you you're just a third world country yeah you don't and the implication being like you don't really matter that much you're probably poor like all of that stuff that goes along with it right, right. and it's really hard to get ahead if you don't have access to Western markets mm -hmm. and it's really dangerous to take advantage of, of, of Soviet markets. So what do you do? Yeah. It's a tough spot. Nicaragua sticks it out though. And the scandal really takes a lot of the pressure off because once the scandal comes out, the funding sort of dries up, not entirely. Mm -hmm. Contra still exists. They're still getting funding from mysterious sources. Let me be very clear when I say that this is unsubstantiated, mm. but there are, allegations that maybe not unsubstantiated it's 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 not a settled uh, matter but there there are claims that the cia turned to the drug smuggling to fund the mm. contras after this point there are some wild theories out there and again let me be very clear that there are theories <laughs> that the cia turns to selling crack cocaine in the united states again as a as a as a nice little double-sided thing to intentionally impact uh, poor, mainly African American uh, mm -hmm. communities, and make money to funnel into anti-communist initiatives overseas. Wow. Again, let me be very clear: right. the evidence is is scarce to non-existent on this. Yeah, um, but there are there are people who know things about things that have said that this is the case. So, I mean, a, a shocking theory, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, crack is a, an interesting. There, there are some rabbit holes you can go down there. Right. Crack cocaine, the, the the method for making it just sort of appears out of nowhere in the 80s, centered around some people who have CI connections. So, you know, it, it's one of those you can draw your own conclusions here. But <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have real evidence to back that one up, unfortunately. So can't really get too deep into that. The 1980s in general are really difficult for Latin America as a whole. Economically, just just extremely difficult. The, the There's the 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 OPEC crisis in the 1970s, right? A number of these countries are, are oil producing and with the collapse of oil prices, they, they, they really take a, a hard hit. A lot of them also turn to borrowing money in the 1960s and 70s to uh, industrialize as rapidly as possible. Mm. Usually loans taken out by these military dictators that aren't really intending to pay it off and right. aren't really concerned about the sometimes bad deals that they're taking. A lot of these end up coming due in the 1980s, especially as interest rates climb globally. Right. You have loans taken out to both the World Bank sort of thing and, you know, other other like official international banking setups that are 
explicitly for aiding Latin America, but also a lot of them have taken out loans to private banking institutions Mm. and a lot of them are coming due and it's really like the repayments end up beyond the capacity of, of some of these countries to repay, like even the interest it gets, it really starts piling up. Yeah. So, you know, crime flourishes, drugs flourish, CIA backed or not. This is where uh, you start seeing uh, a lot of the problems that are, are still going on to this day with mm-hmm. uh, with drug production and smuggling in, in uh, Latin America. I think where we're going to close everything off in terms of the, the, the kind of year-by-year narrative here, at least, is, is 1989 with uh, the American invasion of Panama. Panama was uh, run by a man named uh, Manuel Noriega. He was a former general. He had used his presidency, as so many others had, as a screen for drug running, money laundering, other types of corruption. He had actually laundered quite a bit of money through, like, the World Bank, like, like, like aid. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's really interesting stuff. He had also been a CIA asset since 1967. Of course. Had helped facilitate that funding of the Contras that we talked about. He was involved with so many different U.S. entities, uh, government entities, that basically all of them knew about all the corruption and none of them could do anything about it because they were complicit in certain ways. Until finally in the 1980s, the links started popping up in the public record. People started realizing that the CIA had a relationship with him, that the, uh, the DEA had a relationship with him, even though he was involved in drug smuggling wow uh yeah and 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 they decided i mean i'm saying they decided to cut him loose as though that's the impetus for all of this the the official the official rationale for uh the u.s military invading panama in 1989 was you know to safeguard the u.s lives of you know all these people that that lived along the canal in the canal zone still to crack down on the war on drugs to deal with the human rights violations that were going on in Panama. You know, these things were happening in lots of Latin America countries at this time uh, without real consequences of any sort from the United States. The immediate trigger for the invasion was a United States Marine that was killed. He was in Panama. You know, it's one of those things that kind of, it's, it's unfortunate, but it, it can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was spun into a, a you know, reason for invasion by the United States. 27,000 U.S. troops are involved in this invasion. Wow. It's the biggest U.S. military action since Vietnam at this point in time. Uh, Noriega is deposed. There's massive international outcry. It's been a long time since you, the U.S. has just rolled up on a Latin American country. And the last time it happened, it was a very different world. Right. Like, we're talking like a pre-World War II. This is not a world... That that was not a world with the United Nations where people could express their outcry. Yeah, totally. This is not a... a you know, quote unquote, post-colonial world where uh, the great powers have, you know, released their grasp on Africa and encouraged, you know, uh, self-governance and independence. This is blatantly interventionist, almost imperialist move in, in, you know, within our lifetime. Right. And it was an ugly look. (laughs) You know, the United States is arguing all the usual stuff that they would argue in this case, you know, this is about human rights. This is about, you know, intervening on behalf of the uh, the Panamanian people. You're also getting at this point, uh, the new rhetoric that's going to be used against Latin America in a lot of cases, which is the war on drugs. Mm. Um, this is about drugs coming into us borders. Never mind the fact that the guy's working directly with the DEA. We don't like the drugs that are coming in through those channels. Right. 
And I think it's a good place to stop because, you know, we're only two years short of the fall of the Soviet Union. This is the end of the Cold War. We're no longer really concerned about the spread of communism the way we once were. The Soviet Union isn't seen as a threat so much as kind of a, well, I mean, that's not true. They're still seen as a threat, but mm-hmm. not in this like vital, like kind of spreading way that, that they were in the 50s. That's they're, right. They, they still have nukes, but they're not as insidious as they were assumed to be mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're seen as kind of decrepit. They're kind of right. untouched. They're, they're wrapped up in their own bureaucracies, you know, a little Byzantine. We got to find a new way to kind of keep a lid on Latin America. And <laughs> we're starting to pivot that narrative a little bit, right? You know, with with the end of the so with the end of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, it does also end the Truman Doctrine, and it does change the way that the United States relates to Latin America. And what you see in the '90s is a, a, a flourishing of uh, socialist sentiment, and it's left it's 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 allowed to to grow mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent. Now the, we're we're getting kind of beyond the scope of a history show at this point. You know, we're getting <laughs> very, very recent. And so I'll leave it at that. But what I will also say is that it hasn't ended U.S. involvement in Latin America uh, by any means. They, they've continued to be very, very directly involved uh, up until very, very recently. Mm. Something really struck me when I was when I was looking through information for this topic, which was that I, I, I was looking through a, a list of uh, U.S. Uh, involvements in foreign leadership changes. And I got to a sentence somewhere that, I'm paraphrasing, but was essentially that Costa Rica was the only Latin American nation uh, with no long-lived military dictatorship in the 20th century. Wow. Now, that didn't say no military dictatorship. Theirs was only two years long, though. (laughs) Wow. That's the shortest shortest military dictatorship in Latin America. You know, I mentioned we we skipped so many interventions that we we could have gotten into in, in fairly granular detail. You know, Argentina, 1976, Brazil, 1964, Paraguay, 1954, Peru, 1963, Uruguay, 1973. You know, this is ignoring the 32 interventions during the Big Brother period, right? And this also isn't counting, you know, this is all the ones we know about, right? That's the wild thing. We know the stuff that the the CIA was getting up to in this era. How many of these operations do we know nothing about? I I, I don't know. Like, I don't yeah. have a, you know, yeah. that's, that's an unknowable thing, but... Like, clearly they weren't squeamish about it. And what was going on down there? That's crazy. I mean, I mean, of course I had heard of military interventions and, and the you know, the backing yeah. of these military coups and everything, but I, I didn't actually realize how pervasive it was. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the story of Latin America overall has, has been one of United States dominating their domestic and foreign affairs in, in a very direct manner. Right. The only time that they don't is these military dictatorships that are hard right wing, that are often anti-democratic, are often violating human rights on a fairly large scale. And that's not to say that there was never been a that there's never been a, a left leaning government in in South America or in in Latin America that had human rights issues. Absolutely, there were problems. Mm-hmm. But when we're looking as we are in, in this topic at uh, United States intervention, um, the, the pattern is extremely clear. You see it in Haiti, I don't know how many times. Mm. You see it in, in in every single one of these countries. The U.S. gets their fingers in there at some point for some reason. Not always with the military, sometimes with covert operations, but 
they're in there and they're they're bending their policies to uh the will of the united states and it's it's you know as i've commented so many times the 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 audacity of it is is really really striking the right. the, the entitlement of it is really really striking and when we started talking today about you know where everybody was at in the 1900s and we kind of comp- commented on how little disparity there was at the beginning of the 20th century you know after what we've talked about you know what, what what does that say about how big those those gaps are today right mm-hmm. it's 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 quite clear what the common denominator is here right it's it's not hard to figure out and again that's not to blame every problem that latin america has ever had on the united states that's, that's not fair either but you know <laughs> there are plenty that do follow that thread back eh? right so anyways, that's more or less the topic. Uh, I've tried to keep everything as brief as possible. Uh, hopefully not at the expense of any of these stories. Uh, I mean, I think there are things in here that uh, I'll be coming back to at some point in a, in a much more in-depth capacity. Right. Um, I can think of three or four off the top of my head that would, would be able to support a topic on their own. I oh, think. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. And, you know, again, at the, at the risk of commenting on, on current events, I, I think it's one that's important to um, have some sense of if you're going to understand the world as it exists today, because the ripples yeah. are still very much in place. So. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't actually that long ago in the grand scheme of things. No, no, not at all. And, and the effects of it are still very much uh, alive to this day. Yeah. So, um, as always, I'll ask for final impressions thoughts comments questions what do you think uh yeah like um it was all just more than i expected do okay. you know what i mean like yeah. um i i had a sense of what we would be discussing uh before i came in but the the scale of it is much larger than i had anticipated right yeah yeah it's it's a lot going on it's a lot of information to take in definitely and it's just a lot of resources committed to something yeah you know, outside of domestic borders. And that's just not something that you've really seen well, and, and, in, and in a big way. Of official policy. That it's too. It's just like completely too. off the grid. Well, yeah, and, and that's interesting. It, there, there's this veneer that needs to be kept up of, of like, oh, well, we're the United States. Like, we value sovereignty. We uh, value liberty. We, um, you know, we're not imperialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's sort of a, a thing that they've had to keep up all of all this time and there's certain spots in the story where it's kind of like just make it official policy already like just right. at least be honest about what you're doing yeah you know when when i don't know when britain goes into to india in in 1857 and go like well we're ruling india now like yeah. at least it's just like they're, they're not pretending yeah <laughs> not that it's a good thing oh, but no, it's like it's not good at all but but it's but there's there's at least honest a, yeah it's, there's it's an honesty to horrible it. and honest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and yeah, there's there's a bit of just like a guys just just say what you're gonna do here. Yeah, I'm curious because when I when I did the um, Iran Contra episode, I heard from a lot of people from the U.S. Uh, that had never heard of any of this stuff, even though mm. it's it's relatively recent stuff, right? right? This is all the '80s. I'm 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 interested to hear from not just people in in the United States, but in general, how much of this stuff people were aware of. Because, you know, as I said at the beginning of part one, this isn't, I'm not on crusade here, right? Like none of this stuff is like, this isn't a takedown. This is just like, this is, this is the story of Latin America in the 20th century. Right. This is what they've had to deal with. But it's also stuff that isn't generally 
the kind of things that I would expect to show up in the official textbooks necessarily. Right. I can see why there would be reasons not to talk about it. And, you know, every country has those things. But I'm, I'm curious to see how much of this is, is new to people versus uh, uh, already known information. Yeah. Um, should be really interesting to find out. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I had a general sense, but mm -hmm. no idea of the, of the scale. Yeah. yeah it's, it's really interesting. Good. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me about this. Thanks for having me. We'll have to do this again soon. Definitely. The Cold War and the United States containment policy in conjunction with a history of entitlement to intervention in Latin America led to nearly 50 years of military and covert interference by the United States in Latin America. Any understanding of Latin America that ignores the social, political, economic, and humanitarian effects of this interference isn't complete. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I mixed up the terms privatization and nationalization I think a number of times, actually. Those are very different things. Latin American nations were almost always nationalizing. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, perhaps more with this topic than plenty of other ones, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.